today, by the way. How many of you actually grew up um, in churches or, you know, celebrating Palm Sunday in some, some way? A lot of you, yeah. Uh, for some reason or whatever, we don't have much of a tradition of doing anything on Palm Sunday. It's not because we think there's anything wrong with it. We just, we just don't. I don't really know why. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I grew up in lots of different churches, and some churches kind of made a big deal of it. Some of them didn't really. Uh, some of them were, everyone would come with like palm branches and the kids would get them in Sunday school and they'd do a whole, you know, production and everything. Um, we're not going to really focus much on Palm Sunday today. We've already kind of just covered the events of Palm Sunday in the last, you know, few weeks or so. So we're going to be continuing in Matthew chapter 22, uh, picking up in, in verse 15. We're kind of in the, we're in that middle period between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, and it's several chapters of Matthew. Um, back in, in chapter 21, we read about Jesus, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That is, you know, the Palm Sunday, riding on a donkey in the tradition of kings, fulfilling prophecy. He's greeted by uh, these people with, with praise and adoration, shouting, Hosanna. His ride into Jerusalem on the, the coats and, and uh, robes and, and palm branches that people laid down, um, thrown down by people in reverence to their king, that's, that's the event that many Christians commemorate on this day, the Sunday before Easter, um, when we'll you know, celebrate his resurrection from the dead. Which really, you may, if you think about it, that kind of makes Palm Sunday... If you think about it as a celebration, it's sort of a bittersweet celebration because you know, um, you know, it's great to think about his victorious entry, his warm welcome, and it's great to think about his resurrection on Easter Sunday, but between there, there's some events that have to take place uh, that go from him being triumphantly welcomed to resurrecting. He gets killed in there at some point, so events really take a, a clear turn uh, during that week between those two Sundays. He goes from being worshipped in the streets to being flogged and killed and then to be raised in glory all in the span of a week. And these last few chapters of Matthew, really all the way to the end of, of chapter 28, is pretty much all taking place within that week. And there's a lot that happens during that time. Jesus going from a pretty popular, loved and followed guy to being a pretty feared, hated, and avoided guy. He was even avoided by his closest friends and followers by the end. And it happens pretty quickly. How does that happen? Well, it's certainly the hardness of people's hearts, their willful ignorance of the truth, their pride, their greed, just the general sinfulness of humanity that blinded them to uh, the identity of Jesus that leads to his crucifixion. But at the same time, we've seen in the last few passages, Jesus really makes no attempt to placate his enemies, does he? He says and does things when he gets to Jerusalem that cause even more fear and resentment from the religious leaders who are the ones who are eventually going to incite the crowds against him. So again, in chapter 21, Jesus, he enters Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, and he chastises the merchants there. <clears throat> For being there, he causes quite a scene. He drives them out and he settles in, in the temple. He stays there to preach and teach in the temple. And everything he says throughout this, though it may humiliate and anger the religious leaders, he's not doing it just for the sake of upsetting them. He's speaking the truth out of a love for a people and a desire for them to know the truth, to know him, and by knowing him, know the Father. So it's those who are unwilling to see past themselves and unwilling to set aside their own pride who really are the ones who become upset and enraged by the truth rather than being humble and being willing to actually learn from Jesus and, and adjust their perspectives. In the middle of chapter 21, we saw the chief priests and the elders challenge Jesus' authority. What gives you authority to be here in the temple in Jerusalem preaching and teaching. And Jesus responds with three different parables, which Mike covered last week, ending with the parable of the wedding feast, which is at the beginning of chapter 22. So we're going to pick up where that left off. Those parables are pretty pointed critiques. They are condemning the priests and the elders who were questioning Jesus' authority. 
And they can see that. They get that. And it infuriates them. They're upset that Jesus is calling them out. But they're, they're too afraid to do anything about it because they see how many people regard Jesus very highly. They regard him as a prophet of Yahweh sent from God. Because of that, they're willing to follow him. And the Jewish leaders are afraid that Jesus is going to turn the crowds against them, even violently. That's their fear. And that tension is going to continue in chapter 22. And that tension is going to build, and Jesus is going to continue to even build that tension by continuing to call out their corruption in the, in the chapters to come. Uh, but here we're going to see people repeatedly trying to find fault with Jesus. Jesus not having any real faults. He hasn't committed any crime. But they're going to try, because of that, because they really can't catch him in anything, they're going to try to trick him, trap him, twist him, his words into saying something that they could possibly use against him. And yet, as, just like we saw last week, Jesus is going to outwit them every time. Even in the most heated interactions, nasty, hateful interactions, Jesus always demonstrates greater patience, greater power, greater, greater wisdom, and a greater understanding of Scripture than any of the people who challenge him. So today we're going to look at the last few interactions in Matthew that Jesus has with the religious leaders before the last section of preaching and teaching in Matthew where he's going to have a few more you know, chapters of teaching before he gets arrested. And in this passage, Jesus is going to rather decidedly shut down the Pharisees and the Sadducees to influential groups of uh, religious leaders. They're going to be left with no further logical argument, no scriptural argument to use against Jesus after this, which is going to eventually force them, as we'll see later on, to turn to more kind of devious and shady conspiracy against Jesus. And we'll see that in a few chapters later. They even become criminals themselves, in a sense. But I love this section here because it's an exposition of Jesus' wisdom. Uh, his tactfulness and understanding of Scripture. It's sort of a finale to this mental sparring match that Jesus has been having with these different groups of leaders. So over the course of these, we're going to look at three conversations today. And over the course of these three conversations, he effectively just shuts them up. He gets them out of the way so that he'll be able to carry on and continue his teaching in the temple that he went there to do. And let me tell you, it's no small feat to shut these people up. These are people who like to be seen, like to be heard, like to be obeyed and followed. Even well-meaning, they've let their, their pride and their, their greed kind of get the best of them, and they're unwilling to learn from Jesus. So how does he finally get them to leave him alone? Even if only temporarily, yes, they're going to come back, but he gets them to leave him alone at least for now so that he, he can be seen and heard and obeyed and followed as he preaches in the temple. All right, so we're going to look at these three conversations. He's, now, he's going to be confronted first by some followers of the Pharisees and of Herod, and then by the Sadducees, and then finally by the Pharisees themselves. So let's start by reading the first conversation, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, Why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Well, Caesar's, they said to him. And they said, then he said to them, Give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. All right, let's start first by looking at who is confronting Jesus here. Who exactly is asking this question about paying tax to Caesar? We're told, uh, first off in, in verse 15, the Pharisees got together to work out a plan to trap Jesus, specifically to trap him in his words. They wanted to trap him by something he said. So right away, 
we know the motive behind this question that's ultimately brought to Jesus. It's not out of a genuine interest to learn from Jesus or even just simple curiosity. You know, I, I wonder what your opinion is on this. The, the motive is a motive of malice and of slander. And in verse 16, we learned the Pharisees didn't even have the gumption or courage to approach Jesus themselves. I guess maybe they could have just been lazy, but either way, they, they send their disciples, their students, to Jesus. And it's not just them, is it? Who do the Pharisees go with? Or the Pharisees' disciples go with? Herodians. Or supporters of Herod. Now, there's not much mention of this group of people outside of this story. Uh, there's a couple other you know, references, but this would have really been more of a political affiliation than a religious one. You remember that the Herodian dynasty, the Herod family, was a family of Jewish rulers who were put in place by the Roman Empire in the Jewish regions that they occupied. So they acted as local authorities for the Jews and lived like little kings compared to the rest of the Jews. They had a lot of privileges that came with being a local authority. And on one hand, you can imagine some of the Jews being kind of resentful towards the Herods, their own kin, Jews who, you know, had sworn loyalty to Rome. While on the other hand, you know, at least they're Jewish. You know, they don't have some Roman sitting next door telling them what to do. It's at least another Jew. And in theory, Herod would be kind of in a position to represent the Jews to the rest of the Roman Empire and kind of champion important issues to, on behalf of the Jews and providing leadership and governance to solve local issues while having you know, that shared cultural and religious history that they would kind of understand each other. Of course, that's not exactly how Herod is portrayed. He's not portrayed in nearly such a positive of a light. That's, but the potential that someone in that position could have attained really seems like he was more of just a lazy glutton who enjoyed being in a place of power. And the whole family, honestly, you look at the family and the histories of Josephus and cross-reference with what happened with John the Baptist, the the whole family was a mess, a disgusting mess. Um, But still, it's understandable to see how some Jews would be a little less reluctant to obey Herod versus, you know, the Roman Empire. Yeah, I'll be loyal to this Jewish authority who's been placed over me, but Caesar, that's, you know, another, another story. Even if, you know, loyalty to Herod does still ultimately mean loyalty to Rome. It's implied. But the bottom line here, that the political tension between Jerusalem and Rome was very tense, to say the least. And the the presence of these Herodians when approaching Jesus alongside the Pharisees' disciples, it's kind of an odd mix of people to have together. It's only going to make this situation, this conversation with Jesus, more volatile. You have two sort of opposing teams here, and they're trying to set up Jesus to offend somebody. They figure no matter how he answers this question, he's going to offend one group or the other. Either the Jews or the Romans, whether religiously or politically, they figure this is going to plunge him somehow into controversy, no matter how he answers. Notice, too, how they really try to butter him up before actually asking the question. In verse 16, they call him teacher. They declare him to be truthful, He's a teacher of truth and of the way of God. They say, yeah, you're impartial, you're unbiased, you're uninfluenced by popular opinion, you're, you're unconcerned with status or fame, so we really know we can trust you because you're not going to say things just to placate the masses. Which is all true. I mean, honestly, they were giving Jesus a great compliment here. This is, you know, if it weren't empty, you know, they're kind of inadvertently giving him a, a great compliment. And think about this. It's an assortment of of Pharisees' students, some members of Herod's party, but as far as they know, Jesus doesn't know who they are. There's no reason to think that he has really met any of them before. It might be one reason the Pharisees themselves sent their disciples instead. In their minds, Jesus has no idea what their intentions are, who sent them to him. So starting off with this gushing declaration of how great a teacher he is, begging to know is, you know, we have to know, what are your thoughts? What do you think about this? It's honestly a very smart, manipulative move on their behalf. Their assumption is based on the truth that many teachers, good teachers even, can easily fall susceptible to flattery. 
anyone, any human can easily fall susceptible to flattery. And complimenting a teacher on how well they teach, it's going to make them feel good. And anyone who allows themselves to fall into flattery can easily, in their pride, talk themselves into a trap. And that's what their goal was. And I'll say it was a pretty good attempt. It was a very good attempt. But it's Jesus. <laughs> uh, so for, what's the question they ask? In verse 17, we get their question. Is it lawful to give tax to Caesar or not? In other words, does the Torah, the law, does the teaching of the Old Testament permit paying taxes to the Roman emperor or not? Again, the cleverness of this question is that it's one of those questions that gets you in trouble no matter how you answer it. Have any of you ever been asked a question where you're like, there's really no good, no matter how, maybe with your spouse or someone else, I'm not, I don't want to know what the question is, but you know, I think we've, we can all think of those situations where the question is a trap. No matter how I answer this, I, it's not going to turn out well for me. I feel like that happens to husbands more often than wives. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> Anyway, uh, if Jesus were to answer yes to this question, it would be to imply support of the Roman Empire, and that would not be popular among the Jews. How would they be able to get behind this new king if he's going to be really no different than Herod himself? He's just going to support the Roman Empire, just like Herod. And yet to answer no would incriminate him as being a sort of dissident against the Romans, deepening the already existing Roman distrust of him in fear of a Jewish uprising against the Romans in Jerusalem and beyond, which was something that they've been kind of concerned about even since before Jesus. So again, their assumption is that no matter how he answers, he's going to be in trouble. But their mistake is in thinking that Jesus will approach this as a yes or no question. The way they posed it, it was a simple yes or no question. Yes or no. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? But he doesn't give them a yes or no. I don't think, I'm not sure if Jesus ever gives a simple yes or no question. I didn't actually have time to like research and do a search to find out. If any of you want to feel like doing that, please do and let me know. If you find any time Jesus answers with a simple yes or no, I couldn't think of any off the top of my head in any of the gospel accounts. He's not someone to give direct, simple answers. So honestly, his answer is very much the type of answer that we should have come to accept from Jesus by now. And as always, the way he responds is informed by their intent, which of course he knows. You know, I, if, if their motive had truly been one of genuine interest or curiosity in his opinion, a desire to learn from him, and perhaps he would have answered a little bit differently, we don't know. We do know Jesus was not caught up in their flattery. He saw past their, their flowery words. And in verse 18, he, it says that he saw their malicious intent, or he knew their wickedness. He could see through them. He was fully aware of who they were, what they were doing, what they were trying to do. Once again, Jesus was just far more perceptive and wise than they gave him credit for, than they were expecting. And before even answering the question, he, he calls them out. He calls them hypocrites. Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? And we talked about this word a little bit when it came up earlier on in Matthew. Because uh, today, in English, we use that word hypocrite purely in a negative sense. Right? Have you ever been, you know, have you ever thought of someone as a hypocrite in a positive way? <laughs> I don't think so. And really, the reason we have that word in English and use it as an insult uh, or as a, a negative description is because of the way Jesus used it often uh, to describe the Pharisees. So in English, the way I would uh, define it is simply a hypocrite is someone who says one thing and does another. He teaches how to live, and then his life is like the complete opposite of that. The word comes from Greek, and in Jesus' day, it simply meant actor, as in a stage actor. Someone who would typically wear a mask and pretend to be someone else, put on a show. So in that context... It wasn't inherently a negative word. It was just a descriptive word, neither positive or negative. And there's nothing inherently wrong with acting on stage, right? It can, that, acting can be a wonderful work of art and performed unto the Lord, right? These people that Jesus is calling hypocrites are not on a stage. They're not actors by vocation. Uh, 
the people who Jesus is calling hypocrites, he's calling them that because it's like they're putting on a mask, a facade of spiritual piety. They're literally faking an interest in Jesus' opinion. They don't care about his opinion. They just want to get him in trouble. So Jesus calls them fakes, is essentially what he's calling. You, you fakes, you actors. Why are you testing me? And he could have just left it there, couldn't he? At that point, he's, he's called them out as being disingenuous. He's really under no implicit obligation to answer them. He could have just ignored them. He could have ordered them to go away. He could have made another whip or grabbed the one that he made you know, earlier and just you know, drove them out like he did the merchants. But he didn't. He says, show me the tax coin. Show me what you use to pay taxes. And they bring him a denarius, which would have looked something like that. And this isn't the first time that Jesus has been brought a denarius, is it? Back in chapter 17, Jesus actually faced a very similar question, but in that case, it was regarding the temple tax, which was also paid with the denarius, so roughly a day's wage for a typical laborer, soldier, typical day's wage. So not really a burdensome tax. And actually, Matthew uses kind of a technical word. Being a tax collector himself, he would have been, you know, it makes sense that he would be specific with, you know, the state tax that's paid after the census once a year. Uh, he knew exactly what this was. And yeah, it was one denarius, one day's work that was paid once a year. And in this case, the question is not about whether or not to give to the temple, it's not just the affairs of the Jewish temple, the Jewish you know, laws and, and practices, but paying to a foreign entity, this foreign emperor that had taken over control of their land. Basically, they were paying for land that was given to them by God. They were paying for the right to live on their own land. So you can imagine that they would be you know, upset with this. So they show Jesus this denarius, and he asks them a question. Whose image... An inscription is on there. And you can see in that picture, there's an image on one side with some inscription, and on the other side, there's another image with some, some more words. <clears throat> These coins, uh, this would have been a Tiberian coin, bore the likeness of Tiberius Caesar, along with an inscription that proclaimed Tiberius to be the son of the divine Caesar who preceded him, which was, in no uncertain terms, declaring Tiberius Caesar to be divine. Now, this is a moment of true irony. I don't know if Jesus was holding the coin or looking at the coin in front of him. Either way, you know, he's looking at this coin that's proclaiming some Roman clown to be a divine king, the son of the divine, while Jesus himself is standing there as the true son of the God of the universe. It's ironic. And yet Jesus transforms this, this moment that would have been headed in, with most people towards inevitable contra, uh, conf confrontation, controversy, into a much more non-confrontational revelation, which really astounds them. They walk away just amazed. He says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, or render, in more traditional translations, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. It's a simple statement, Simple, you know, one sentence that leaves them astonished. And though this is a, it's a pretty concise statement, um, it has several profound implications in this, this context. First of all, he's, he's separated Caesar from God as being distinct from each other. You give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. The implication there is Caesar is not God. They are different people. So, he does not recognize Caesar's divinity, but he does recognize that this round hunk of metal was produced and distributed by Caesar as a currency. The concept of currency itself is just an arbitrary concept, um, but this currency was defined and controlled by the Roman Empire. Any currency is created and controlled by humans. It belongs to humans, and it serves a purpose. You know, money, currency, it's not inherently good or bad certainly can be used either way. It can be used to bless others, to provide for people, or it can be used to oppress and benefit from others at their expense. Money's not evil, but the love of money is evil and, and greed is evil. 
and the Roman Empire was certainly greedy and oppressive. Uh, not that the Jews didn't benefit from, you know, being part of the Roman Empire. They got to use their infrastructure, their aqueducts and roads, and, you know, there were certain real benefits to being part of the Roman Empire. Um, but it was, was certainly oppressive and, and not what God had promised to Israel that they all wanted, you know, to see their land restored to them and their, under their own sovereignty. And yet Jesus does not suggest rebelling against those governing authorities when it, when it came to paying their taxes. After all, they're just giving back something that came from Rome in the first place. Under Roman rule, despite many hardships they did have, the Jews, you know, and despite, you know, aside from enjoying the infrastructure, they were not oppressed in that they weren't prevented from worshiping their God. They weren't deported away even to another country like they were when they were in exile and Babylon and Persia uh, were in control. They still had their city, they had their temple, their religious leaders, and even Herod, a Jewish governor, to act as, as a sort of a, a king within the umbrella of Roman rule. Of all foreign empires who had ruled the Jews, they you know, were probably the most free under the Romans. They weren't prevented from following Torah, from eating kosher, from praying daily, from attending synagogue, following all the conditions of God's covenant with Moses, all the teachings of the law and the prophets. <clears throat> this is very different from the situation we see uh, in the Old Testament with Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with their story. They were commanded by their captors not to worship Yahweh. <clears throat> And that's when they refused to comply, no matter what the consequence was. They would not go along with what they were commanded by humans when it came to worshiping Yahweh. They, they would not be prevented from doing that. But paying taxes, for, in, in their case especially, it does, that doesn't prevent anyone from worshiping God. Though dwelling on it may distract us from worshiping God if we think too long about how much we hate taxes. Um, but there's really nothing that, that is inherently preventing us from, from doing anything uh, that we're commanded to do. And neither was the case for the Jews. So there's really no reasonable way either for them at the time for the Jews to change their situation, to do anything about their tax without resorting to violence and insurrection. You know, going uh, and voting or, you know, lobbying for different causes was just simply not an option for the Jews at the time. And a lot of people expected from Jesus violence and insurrection, but that's, that's not what he came for. And it's not that Jesus is condoning oppressive regimes, right? There's plenty of Old Testament passages that speak against the evils of, of tyranny and promise redemption for the oppressed. And God loves to use his people to bring relief to those who need it. And the church should be concerned today about and, and active in issues of, of social justice and health and poverty and education, uh, whether in our communities or throughout the world. And yet we also realize that it will continually be an ongoing struggle and that human regimes will always be flawed until God's kingdom is, is fully realized and sin and death pass away for good and, and God reigns as the one true emperor, the one true king of the universe. We're not called to be violent insurgents in the meantime. Which is why Jesus doesn't leave his answer with, you know, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, or, you know, give to Caesar what belongs to him. He follows that up with a, with a second statement, give to God what belongs to God. And this is where I think it truly gets profound. The first statement, you know, just follow the, follow the rules, follow the law. Caesar gave it to you, you can give it back. Okay. If his inquisitors here weren't already astonished by this point, I think this last comment that he makes surely would have been what set them over the edge and causes them to walk away speechless. Now again, this undermines the concept of Caesar being divine. But more than that, <clears throat> it invites the question of <clears throat> what belongs to God? If the Roman coins belong to Caesar, what belongs to God? <clears throat> what do you think? What, what belongs to God? Anyone? 
obedience? You really can't go wrong with this question. There's almost no wrong. This isn't a trap, it's a trick question. What belongs to God? Everything, right? So no matter what you, no matter what you answer, it's, a, it's the right answer because everything belongs to God. But I'm going to get a little more specific because the coins, the coins bear the image of Caesar, therefore rendering them as belonging to Caesar as, and his, his dominion, his kingdom. So let me ask you this then. What are we told that bears the image of God, the living God? What is stamped with the image of Yahweh? What was that? It's us. Yeah, people. Now, all of creation bears the mark of the, the creator, the strokes of his brush, um, and the whole universe declares his glory from, from galaxies to subatomic particles and everything in between. But we're told in Genesis that one member of creation was chosen as a crowning jewel to explicitly bear the image of Yahweh to the rest of creation. In a sense, a divine currency, if you will, to, to rule the earth on which they were put as ambassadors and representatives of their creator. Have you ever thought of yourself as a currency before? No. I hadn't either, honestly, until I was, I was writing this. Um, and it's certainly not a perfect metaphor. I don't want you to read too far into it because it's not like humans are objects that are used as, you know, payment for divine transactions or something. Uh, that's, that's not what I'm getting at. But as has been previously implied by some of other, um, Jesus' other parables in Matthew, which have involved treasures and coins, we can see that humans are the prized possession, the highly valued creation in God's eyes. And when we talk about the kingdom of God, we've, we've talked about this before, we're not talking about walls and castles, we're talking about people, living stones that make up not a physical building, but a living building. And when we're talking about storing up treasure in heaven earlier in Matthew, we're not talking about storing up gold coins or cars. We're talking about people. Really, everything belongs to God. We see that in Deuteronomy 10, 14, all throughout the Psalms. There's all, kind, all kinds of references, but Deuteronomy 10 14 says, Behold, to Yahweh your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. It's everything. So part of that is all people. All people belong to God, and people are incredibly valuable to God as bearers of his image. All people, including Caesar. <laughs> Jesus, I think, had really hit them with the truth that was so deeply rooted in Scripture. These people knew, knew the Torah. They knew Scripture. They knew that what he was saying, they couldn't deny it. And while doing so, he had kind of managed to redirect their attention from the you know, physical treasures and, and human politics and things of this world to the kingdom of God and to the value of people rather than being obsessed with money and who it's going to. All of all asserting God's authority over Caesar undermining Caesar's claim to divinity while still not advocating for disobedience or for revolting against him. Which just left them for, with no further argument, nothing left to say. It's brilliant, really. He kind of placated and disagreed with both sides at the same time while also kind of throwing in some, some theological truth and teaching. It's awesome. So that, that was the group that was sent by the Pharisees. The next group that comes up to challenge Jesus is a group called the Sadducees. We've seen them before, too. They were you know, smaller, but still an influential sect of Jewish leadership. Um, they differed from the Pharisees in that they believed that once humans die, they simply cease to exist completely. There's no resurrection, no afterlife, as we might call it. No eternal existence of a soul or spirit or consciousness. And no physical form for a human once the one that we have now and experience once in this life on earth, once that body is gone, that's it. Jesus, of course, disagrees with this, this view. He's claimed multiple times that he himself will be raised from the dead, so he, clearly he believes in the possibility of resurrection. And he's offering eternal life to all those who follow him. So that's clearly going against what the Sadducees believe. 
They don't believe in eternal life. And they know how influential Jesus is. They know that they could turn people against them. So they too are hoping to outwit Jesus and show their view as, as logically superior to his and the Pharisees. They come to him with a question that they think is going to reveal the absurdity of the, the concept of a resurrection. It's a rather convoluted and, and outlandish, but still plausible scenario. Uh, they're trying to just throw a logical wrench in the concept of eternal life. So let's read starting in verse 23. That same day, Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They pose this question. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So his brother married the widow. But the second brother also died and the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them. Last of all, the woman, who, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Jesus replied, Your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. For when the, the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. But now as to whether they, there will be a resurrection of the dead, haven't you ever read about this in the scriptures? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. When the crowds heard him, they were astounded at his teaching. So this is a very odd question to us today. If I were to kind of paraphrase the question the way someone would ask it today, it would be something like, well, what if one woman is married to seven different men throughout her life, or actually eight, I guess, technically total, but never has any kids with any of them? You know, whose, whose wife will she be in heaven? This question might seem rather absurd to us because it doesn't really make much sense in our cultural context. So to understand it, you have to understand that women at the time, first of all, they were in a, a patriarchal uh, culture and they relied on men. They'd go from being provided for by their father to their husband who would provide for her, give her children. They would hope for some sons especially to take care of her after her husband died and then the sons would, would take care of her. A widow who was left with no, no husband and no children would have to resort to begging and charity from others. There was really no other option in that society for her to pursue you know, like a career like a man could. And mind you, this culture is, is described in Scripture not because that's the ideal. That's not necessarily a good way for a society to function. It's just the way it was. And it was a, a lot of it was the result of sin and pride so when God provided the law through Moses, there were some specific protections for women to try to prevent women from becoming desolate and abandoned in, in this society. One of those provisions was that if a woman's husband died before she had children, then the brother of the deceased husband would have the obligation of providing children to her. And those children, or at least a child, would then take on the name of that dead husband so that his name could live on and his household could live on. You can find that particular command in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. I'm not going to go into the whole verse right now. It sounds really weird, and honestly, if you want to read the actual verse, Deuteronomy 25, 5, it's even weirder if you read the whole, the whole passage that describes it. It does make sense if you do a little bit of homework and, and look into the culture. I don't want to go too deep into the rabbit hole of the details of that particular law today, because it's not really the point of the passage in Matthew here. The bottom line there was a command that existed with the purpose of providing for women and preserving the legacy and lineage of every family of every tribe of Israel. The Sadducees are, ref are referencing this command, pulling it completely out of context and presenting an oddly specific hypothetical scenario in an attempt to stump Jesus. And by the way, the command isn't for the brother to actually marry the widow, but simply to provide children Again, it, it, it's very strange, uh, but it was meant to protect women, and, and they're trying to use that scripture against Jesus by providing this, this hypothetical scenario. And in typical Jesus fashion, he turns it around and instead schools them with scripture. So in verse 29, 
he straight up says, you don't understand the scriptures. You do not know the scriptures or the power of God. You are ignorant of the Tanakh. I mean, what a slap in the face to these people who are supposed to be scholars, experts of the law. And I have to wonder, how long did it take them to think up this scenario, to to think of a command that they could use and create some kind of hypothetical scenario that they thought would really be such a clever question for Jesus? He first answers them by briefly explaining, look, you you don't even understand. There's not going to be a need for marriage in the resurrection. There's not going to be a need for procreation, uh, no need for anyone to rely on the labor, the generosity of others. All needs will be provided for by Yahweh himself. So really, your question is completely irrelevant if you really understand the scriptures and what God can do. It's just totally illogical in the context of the, the resurrection, the new kingdom, and the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> your question is stupid. Let's address the real question, <laughs> is basically what Jesus is saying here. Because then Jesus addresses the real issue, the underlying controversy behind their question. Because he knows what they're really after, what they really care about is not what's going to happen to that woman who had seven different husbands. It's about whether or not believing in a resurrection holds up logically and theologically according to the scriptures. So in verse 31, Jesus says, as for the resurrection, as for the real topic, what you really want to get at, haven't you read? (laughs) Again, another kind of insult insinuating they haven't read their Bibles. Haven't you read your Bible? Try reading the Bible sometime. That'll answer your real question. Have you not read what God said? I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God said this to Exodus, uh, to Moses in Exodus, in the present tense. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am, present tense. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. If Abraham and Isaac and Jacob continue to exist, now thousands of years later, when Jesus is saying this, and God continues to claim them as his children in the present tense, then who are you to say otherwise? And we're not told here exactly how the Sadducees themselves responded to this. I like to think that maybe he convinced one or two of them to, you know, change their, their mind. We have no idea. We know the crowds, at least, were, again, astonished. And that word spread about Jesus' uncanny ability to use Scripture to explain even the most complex and contentious and convoluted topics in a wise and humble and patient way. Which brings us to the last discussion Starting in verse 34, the Pharisees catch wind of all of this and they get together again. This time they're not going to send one of their students. They're going to have one of their own approach Jesus and we find out that they're all, they're all there physically present. They're going to have one of their own scholars approach Jesus to ask one more question. Beginning in verse 34, it says, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced... Oh, hold on, I do have this here. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees... They came together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. While the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, David's. He asked them, How is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? No one was able to answer him at all, and from that day, no one dared to question him anymore. So, the question that they ask first in verse 36 is a fairly concise one. Which command of the law is the greatest? And we've seen you know, a similar conversation like this before. And again, this, in this case, the question was not posed out of genuine interest in learning from Jesus, but rather to discredit him and to create controversy. Because this, this question really reflects an ongoing debate among... Um, and attempts among ancient Jewish legal experts to prioritize the commandments. 
of the law. They would have debates. They'd get together and debate whether this law should be considered a weighty law or a light law. <laughs> uh, whereas other more script, uh, strict Jews saw all the commandments as being equally binding. So this was somewhat of a debate among uh, scholars, Jewish scholars. So again, it's, a meant, it's meant as a question with no good answer in that any answer has the potential to cause offense or undermine his credibility and knowledge of Scripture or of even just the contemporary debates and discussions that were happening on the law. And in this case, Jesus actually does give a, a straightforward answer. He doesn't answer with a question or a riddle. He actually replies by quoting a command from Deuteronomy 6, part of what would have been known as uh, the Shema, which they would have recited multiple times a day. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And he follows up by quoting a less popular but still similar command that's found in Leviticus chapter nine, uh, 19. I'm sorry. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says that all the rest of the commands and the law and the prophets depend on those two, loving God and loving others, fully and completely with everything you are, selflessly and humbly. So he does, in a sense, kind of elevate those two commands as being core to understanding the rest. But he doesn't really dismiss the rest as being unimportant or um, as being invalid either. Those core commands of love God and love others that are the most broad and all-encompassing statements. So it's a good starting point. It's the best starting point with which to understand the rest of the law. But that doesn't make the rest invalid or less important, just maybe more focused. And they range from moral principles to health and, and cleanliness to festivals and rituals to just logistical considerations and civil governance. There's a wide variety of different laws to address different things, all focusing in on different aspects of life uh, whether, you know, general moral principles are specific to their culture at that time, but they all stem from loving God and, and loving others. So again, Jesus is not responding with, you know, kind of the contentious, politically polarized type of answer that they're expecting. And instead, he demonstrates a much deeper, more meaningful, certainly less petty understanding of Scripture than this scholar, so-called expert, who confronted him. And, once again, Jesus doesn't leave it at that, at simply answering their question. He, he takes advantage of this opportunity, this moment with the Pharisees assembled there together, to ask them a question of his own. He's been asked three questions now, and now he's going to respond with a question to the Pharisees. Now, all along, the goal of the Pharisees has been to undermine his authority, to create doubt or even proof that Jesus is not, in fact, sent by Yahweh, but rather was an imposter that needed to be taken out. So Jesus asks them a question about the Christ, the Messiah, this figure that he knows they all believe in and are hoping for, but don't believe that he is. So he's not asking them about himself specifically. He's not asking, whose son am I? Even though we, the reader, know that he is the Messiah. The Pharisees certainly haven't accepted that yet. So he asks about the Messiah, the concept, the prophecy, the ambiguous, mysterious, much-awaited Messiah person who's promised throughout Scripture. According to the prophecies, whose son is the Messiah? And realize, too, when he says son, that's just a way of saying descendant. So whose descendant will the Messiah be? Essentially quizzing them on the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. And it's an extremely easy question. It's an obvious question. They're quick to answer. David, of course. They don't say, of course, but, well, it's David. It's, it's an obvious answer. And it's exactly the answer Jesus was expecting. So they've actually fallen right in his trap now. And the next thing Jesus says to me, it's like the ultimate just drop the mic line. It literally just leaves everyone speechless. And verse 44 is a, a direct quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. And that's a passage you'll find quoted a lot throughout the New Testament. I think it's actually the most quoted where David and the Holy Spirit describes Yahweh, the Father, speaking to the Messiah, a human, and giving him dominion as king in heaven. So if the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David, how could David be seeing him 
while he's still alive and referring to him as his Lord if he hadn't even been born yet. So the implication is that the Messiah, while yes, being tied to the lineage of, of David, also exists apart from that as an eternal member of the triune Godhead. And it places the Messiah's authority beyond that of any other human, including David's, as the high king of heaven. It's pretty cool. And throughout all three of these conversations, Jesus is just impeccable understanding of Scripture and his indisputable claim of authority that no one can poke a hole in just left his listeners astounded. The scholars and crowds alike. Nobody dared to question him again. The chapter ends with, from that day on, no one dared question him anymore. At least not in a serious way. And yet, he had still committed no crime. He had not advocated for treason. He hadn't stirred up any unnecessary controversy. He simply responded to the controversy that was already there. All while unabashedly speaking truth and not shying away from calling out where people were wrong. It's amazing. And it was all done out of love. It's just another reminder of Jesus' perfect wisdom and patience and courage, humility, that we'd all do, do well to emulate in any situation, whether um, a tense situation, tense conversations, um, or, or otherwise. And it's yet another assertion of his deity and his authority and, and his supremacy among men as the ultimate prophet, better than even Moses, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. Speaking of priests, I forgot to mention the other side of that coin of the denarius actually says that he's the high priest. So on one side it says he's the son of God and the other it says he's the high priest. And Jesus is standing there as the direct opposition to Caesar as being the true son of God and the true high priest. It's pretty cool. And the true king of the true kingdom. This passage is also going to set up the next couple chapters where Jesus, now he's going to be free of interruptions for a while, no one else coming up and, and, you know, asking him questions. And he's going to continue to preach hard truths in the temple. He's going to continue to speak out against the religious leaders pretty harshly and then go on to teach some more, you know, pretty challenging things about the coming judgment uh, from God. Lord willing, we're going we're gonna to kind of dive into that section in two weeks. Uh, next week, we're going to be celebrating Easter. Um, I'm going to ask now, Mike, if you wouldn't mind coming and closing in a word of prayer.